Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. And if you just read you, this is a test transmission. It opens a new and, I think, exciting chapter in the story of radio. This is going to be a service to provide a tremendous amount of information and satisfy a lot of different interests. I was always itching to shake it during a program. In the air, on the river and underground. We hope very much that uh, Derek can hear us. Can you hear us? From Resonance 104.4 FM and Social Broadcast, this is Transmitter, the radio show for XMTR.FM, a new space dedicated to sonic storytelling, original sounds, new voices and archive treasures from radio broadcasts, podcasts and sound art across the globe. I'm Lucia Scadzocchio and I've been scanning the digital soundscape to cut through the noise. The next hour we'll be showcasing some audio works featured on xmtr.fm as well as some works produced by social broadcasts over the past year. The first piece you'll hear is from a series of audio postcards commissioned for the Wild Eye Project by Invisible Dust in Scarborough, who work with artists to explore the environment and climate change. Here are some sounds sent from the North Sea. If you were standing on the coast at Whitby, looking out to sea, if you were lucky enough to be there on a good weather day, you'd see a, a really blue sea, a sea that perhaps doesn't look full of life, but you'd hear seabirds wheeling around overhead. You know, you'd smell that salty sea air. If you kind of look down from your vantage point, you can see the sea crashing on the rocks below. It's an incredibly special place. The beauty of living by the sea is that you can always hear the wind and the waves and the oyster catchers and the seagulls. And in the summer, obviously, that changes when we get the noise of the fairground and people having candy floss and fish and chips and kids screaming, the donkeys braying. It's really soothing and relaxing. It's a nice noise to go to sleep with. When we first open the curtains in the morning, it's there. You might sometimes like what you see. It's a beautiful, sunny, flat morning. It's lovely sunrise. Or you might not like it when there's an easterly or a northeasterly gale and huge seas bashing across the end of the pier and off the sea wall. I actually find it like peaceful when it's rough because the waves like crash a lot. Mm. Do you like it when it's rough? I like looking at the sea. And I don't mind being on the sea. I certainly don't like being in it. You lot are more adventurous than yeah. me there. Like the seaside's always been a big part of my life. And I just love how it's such a like powerful force. And we kind of look across it with a little bit of wonder and we think about a kind of a romanticized vision of the sea and what might be coming over the horizon. I think in the past, the sea has been a place of real danger, of course, of connectivity as well, but it's often been where threats have come from. At times, I think we turn our backs on the sea as a population in the UK. We think we're connected as an island nation, 
I don't think we are. I don't think we think enough about the sea. Throughout my life, I've worked on and under the sea. I started off as a fisherman from Scarborough. We worked all over the North Sea in whitefish trawlers mainly, but also some potting vessels, crab potting and lobster potting. I just followed my dad and it was just a formality of helping your dad after school, learning how to make crab pots at an early age, 12, 13 years old. Eventually left school and went with my dad in a cobble, which is a 30 foot open boat. It was very hard. Summer months were spent with lobsters and crabs in the pots. And winter times we would be longlining for cod and haddock. The sea is everything to us. It provides for us by allowing people to catch fish from it. It allows people in the leisure industry to sail on it and row on it and take passengers to sea. It's got so much life on and under the sea. The reason I moved back up here was because of the surf. So all my friends down in Cornwall laughed at me because there's the famous place for surfing. I visited family up here and I saw how good the surf was and I moved up and they just couldn't believe I'd want to leave Newquay to come to Yorkshire and go surfing instead. Off the coast here in front of us and of the coast of Yorkshire, at times we will have a lot of sediments from the land or from coastal erosion, sand and silt and mud and clay particles in the water and they change the colour of the water so that we have a shift to greener and browner wavelengths. So the, the surface of the water looks different depending on the amount of sediments that are in there. And then we have the living component of the seawater, the phytoplankton, the grass, the plants of the sea, and they're absorbing the sunlight. And so we would perceive a greenish shift or in a very dense situation where there's a lot of phytoplankton, the water might actually look dark. And we sometimes get that when there's a very strong, what we call a bloom of plankton in the waters of the North Sea. When you go diving, you're completely encompassed by your environment. There's no distractions, really, from elsewhere. Your senses are completely overwhelmed by that marine environment. So, you know, that feeling of, yes, the cold in the first instance, but the different things that you're seeing that are so different from land. The peace, to be honest, is a huge attraction. You'll be diving down the line and you'll be going down and the water will be getting that bit darker. You still keep going down the line and start losing a little bit of light. And then you just start to see this like, glimmer of some of the marine life on the wreck. And, you know, that wreck just appears out of the gloom. You still get that same buzz of excitement when I see the wreck just appear before me. If you go into what once, you'll do it again. That's the simple thing about it, especially at the moment because Life on land becomes so tricky. What I say to people, the second you put your foot in the water, this is surfing, paddle boarding, swimming, all your problems stay on land. You just get the water around you and you can leave the hard aspects of your life behind. And you can just go and enjoy being somewhere different. It's very relaxing. It's very, very good for your mental state. I'm like a child every time I'm there. I go as much as I possibly can. It's just so relaxing. I've lived for years just down the street from the sea, so the idea of being away from it is so scary. I couldn't imagine going out anywhere else where I couldn't see the sea. That was part of a series of audio postcards from the Wild Eye Project by Invisible Dust. It was produced by me, Lucia Scadzocchio, with sound design by Silvia Malnati. 
You can learn more about the project on invisibledust.com. Now we travel down south to London and more specifically to Hackney's Ridley Road Market where May Robson meets local traders who are struggling with the imminent changes and inevitable gentrification. My name is Tamara and I, I'm an artist and a photographer and I have a workspace on the second floor of the Ridley Road shopping village which is halfway down the market. So we're sitting here in my studio on the second floor. We can hear the market noises downstairs. I moved to Hackney about 10 years, over 10 years ago. And when I was living on Kingsland High Street, I started going down to the market very early in the morning when traders were setting up their stalls. I initially just took my camera there, but very soon I started having conversations with traders and they were telling me about the history of Ridley Road. As I said, I was born and bred in Ridley Road. Never wanted to work any other market but Ridley Road. And I'm what they call a one-market guy. I mean, I, I'm happy. We, we come from a very big family. At one time, I think my actual granddad, he had a, I think we had seven fruit stalls in Ridley Road Market, just seven alone. And it was probably four or five big families at that time. And, and the big families was, was the Julians, which obviously I'm one of them. And then we had the Mayos. And then we had the Mosleys. Uh, and then we had the Canes. And we had the Wades. And it was all basically had five or six stalls each. And it was, it was a family, very family-run market. As time's gone on, obviously we've got loads of different nationalities that we've built up over the years that's become market traders whether it be the Asians or the Turkish people or the West Indian people or Eastern European people. You know, it's, it's just different. So, yeah, the market is in Hackney in Dawson. It's just opposite Dawson Kingsland Station. And it's been around for about 150 years. The market used to be on the road before mm. cars come and it got pushed into Ridley Road because Red started off with cars and you used to have to fight for your pitch. And great granddad, he was a good fighter, so he got a nice little pitch up the top. And that was it, and then it got regulated. Mm. And here we are now. It's a really diverse market. There's so many different cultures, people from so many different countries who've made their homes and their communities here and who work and live with each other. And I think this is really what makes Ridley Road very special. Now is a mix-up. It's a mix of you got black people, white people come in. You know, when you get used to the people in the area and the customers, sometimes it's, it turns to family thing, you know. And my children to come here is easy for them after school. They are comfortable in the place. People know them, they don't get lost anywhere. They see the old oh, children, or if I see my friends' children, I say, Oh, what's your dad? What's your mom? So, to know that, yeah, this is the kind of family thing, you know, we know each other. I decided to go to the local archives and library and read about the history of Ridley Road. And very soon I found out that actually not that much is written about the market's history. At this point I decided maybe it's time to write about the history of the market. And I was speaking to so many different people, 
traders and customers, local people. And I think it was a real education. In those days, there were a lot of Jewish people living in this area. People going across Graham Road towards Sandringham Road. That was predominantly Jewish. They had their own synagogues there. And also, uh, the Jewish people from Stamford Hill found it convenient to come to Ridley Road, straight ride on the bus to other markets. But Ridley Road was special because there were Jewish butchers there. There was a chicken stall keepers who only sold kosher chickens. In the 40s and 50s, I think it was mainly a Jewish market. And basically, Oswald Mosley, he was a fascist who wanted to turn Britain to, you know, into a fascist country. He held rallies here on Ridley Road. That was a very, very sad period because they congregated at the beginning of Colveston Crescent and they gathered there, the fascists, and they had their box that they stood up on. Some of them had a, like an extended ladder so that they could lean on it and do their stuff. And there was always, always fighting broke out. It was really really tough and you were a little bit afraid. And he chose this area because it was a Jewish area, it was a multicultural area and he came here with the black shirts and were preaching hate. Shouting the Yids, the Yids, we must get rid of the Yids and the police not saying a word. And I thought to myself, well, well that is frustration. These lads, who had been in the Navy, Army, Air Force, had fought fascism, had volunteered to go anywhere in the world to make their contribution against fascism. They fought in Burma, and um, the fascists were on the streets provoking these type of people. So I continued to go down to Ridley Road, and... Um, I used to frustrate them because I was this little boy who used to be everywhere. The resistance was very strong here in Hackney and one of the things that I just found really inspiring was a 36-hour, I think, demonstration that was held on Ridley Road in the early 60s by lots of different local groups. So there was different churches, there was different political groups, from communists to conservatives and everything in between, who basically took over the street to make sure that Oswald Mosley and the Black Shirts couldn't turn up to hold their speeches. But there was a lot of other things as well. So there was a group of young Hackney teenagers, and they walked from Ridley Road to Parliament Square. It was a silent walk. And they handed over a letter to the Prime Minister at the time asking to prohibit hate speech. Another thing was the groups of Jewish ex-servicemen. And they would basically infiltrate the crowd and would start fights. And every time Mosley spoke on Ridley Road, fights would break out. 
apparently he never managed to finish any of his speeches. And I think that's just, you know, such an incredible resistance. You know, it was a collective thing. It wasn't just a small group of people. It was a cross-section of the community. Yeah, I think we can learn a lot from what's happened on Ridley Road on a sort of community campaign protest level. But I think we all know that cities, and especially London and especially Hackney, has changed so much. And I think what's really difficult and what's the real problem is that this change is not led by the people who live there. And I feel like it's more and more difficult for people to make a living here. And Ridley Road has always been a working class market and it's 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 well known for the diverse products on sale, but it's also well known for being an affordable market and it's a fruit and veg market. You can get really healthy fruit and veg for an affordable price and that's key. That's key for everyone who's on a low income and I think that's the case for a lot of people. And so I think generally there's a sense that London is a city now that's not for average people anymore and that I think connected with housing makes it really difficult for people to live here and for a community to thrive people need opportunities but people also need to be able to make a home for themselves and to have some stability and security so I think Ridley Road has given that to communities over the years There's not going to be a lot of history if we carry on the way we're going. That's what I'm saying, because I think it's just getting worse and worse. I don't think there'll be a market here for a lot longer. Finish, finish, market finish. No, there's no future here. Market never get back to the way it was. No way. At the beginning of 2020, so just before the pandemic started, Hackney Council updated their regulations for market traders and what was originally I think a five-page document turned into a 30-page document. The Safe Ridley Road campaign group together with traders and the Traders Association we understood that market traders were losing quite a lot of the rights that they were having at the time. Uh, A lot of the market traders were in their 60s and 70s, even 80s, and a lot of them haven't come back now after the pandemic. So there were so many different things going on with lockdowns, with restrictions on trade, with market trade already being quite difficult before lockdown, that now the market is smaller than it was before the pandemic. I think traders have found um, yeah, trade quite slow. As part of the Good Growth Fund that was given by Sadiq Khan's office and that was uh, matched with Hackney Council's money as well to improve the market. So that was £1.5 million. Um, what's happening currently is that the Hackney Council released this Dalston plan, which is also available online, And um, 
Ridley Road is basically part of the Storston plan. And from what I understand, the whole of the north side of Ridley Road has been um, marked as a site for development, an opportunity site for development, which to us as a campaign group seems really difficult because we can't see how development would not disrupt the market. Then again, the Kingsland Shopping Centre, which is sort of on the south side on Ridley Road with the parking space, that's been marked for a large-scale development with 500 new flats. Again, as a campaign group, we find that really difficult because it will change the area beyond recognition, really. And we wonder how much input or needs of the local community have been considered. I've been trading in this market since 2016. In lockdown, well, it was bad. We had a bad time. We heard about millions of pounds that invest to improve the Ridley market. What that improvement mean? Yeah, I don't understand. This is not improvement for help the market traders. It's the improvement to help the council to get the Ridley Road empty so that they can do whatever they want. I don't know their plan. I'm not happy about it, honestly. I'm not happy because I know the end of it, I'm the loser. It's the damage that really, uh, the Hackney Council could do to that in try to basically revamp the market in a way that would be unworkable uh, and outprice itself. That's what worries us. But I don't trust this council. And as I said, I've been in, in this market 50 years, worked here all my life. I was born and bred in the other end of the market. And Hackney Council has never really been a very convincing, comforting council. Regeneration, you know, the council would call it regeneration, is, is, is not just putting money into something. And what I see here is that it's the traders and businesses that really know best what needs improvement and what they need and how the market can function better. And I... And I find that the consultations don't really pick up on these things. And so I wonder, what, what's the problem? Are the consultations not done in a way that they um, sort of understand the needs of the businesses, the small businesses and the market traders here? Why are they not being put into action? Well, let them know that we are surviving here with all our family. We don't have nothing else to survive on bondies. Imagine some people, they retire in the market. You didn't get education for something that you can do to survive. You only educate yourself to be in the market. Now you retire, they couldn't even find another thing to do. So they have to come back and stay with us for the day for nothing. We're not paying them, but they, come out, they feel more comfortable remain here instead of going staying home. What are they going to do? We don't have nothing else. Again, this is our life. Marketing is our life. We want to remain in this market. But right now they are killing the market. With all this design that they do from the front to the back, it's nothing to do to help the market. What I've learned is that the term community or the, the idea of community, it's, it's a long-term and slow process. And it's an action as well. And... When I look at Ridley Road Market, I see a lot of small businesses and um, a lot of family businesses and how market traders and shopkeepers also 
help each other out, how there's community amongst traders and shopkeepers, but also how Ridley Road is a social space, a cultural space. So people come here, they might do their shopping, but they might stay for a couple of hours and meet people. I see people every day, people meet, people play games, people sit and drink and talk. I don't see many other spaces in Hackney where this is still possible without having to spend too much money. And that's something that's basically under threat just as much as the businesses. I wonder how Hackney Council could give more support to these small local businesses in their operation and for them to grow. All we want is to stay here and then survive. That's the only thing. We pray for that and then we beg the council to help us, to stand for us, to remain in our small place where we can survive with our family. That's the only thing we pray for. That was Ridley Road, produced by May Robson with Tamara Stoll, who is working on the Save Ridley Road campaign. It was broadcast as part of the online magazine, thehistoryworkshop.org.uk. Now close your eyes and get ready to experience something a little more ethereal as we enter the cosmos through a rich tapestry of sound by Belgian artist... Adrien Pinet.
That was Cosmos by Belgian sound artist Adrien Pinet. 
And this is just one of the many sound works you can hear on Transmitter's francophone cousin, radiola.b, which is an amazing audio resource from Belgium. Our final selection for this hour is from an oral history project called Lily's Legacy, celebrating the life of Lily Montagu, born in the late 1800s, who became a magistrate, a social worker and a writer, and was also the co-founder of the liberal Jewish movement in the UK. Here are some memories of Lily. Lillian Helen Montague was born in 1873. She was a British social worker, magistrate, writer and religious organiser. Along with Claude Montefiore and Israel Maddock, she formed the liberal Jewish movement in England. In this episode, liberal Jews remember Lily and the legacy she has created. For some, this is deeply personal. Lily was instrumental in bringing Jews from Germany to the safety in England to flee Nazi persecution in the late 1930s. Some of the voices here speak of owing their lives to her. Others remember Lily, along with her sister Marion, as the leader of the West Central Club. Lily's girls, as they were called, were working-class Jewish girls. They received lessons at the club and the opportunity to worship and socialise. Others remember Lily attending or leading religious services. Participants paid tribute to Lily's deep spirituality and her innovative decision to move Sabbath services to the afternoon. Lily died in 1963 so many project participants did not meet her. And yet, as these stories show, liberal Jews feel indebted to her and are inspired by her pioneering work as a social reformer, even though they never met her in person. I knew she was a very famous human being. We always knew if Lily Montague was in the congregation, because whatever prayers were said, it was guaranteed that a split second after everybody finished, Lily was still praying. Always the same. You said Amen, one, two, three, and then Lily would say Amen. So my mother stayed in close contact with Lily and her two companions, her sister Marion and her companion, Miss Lewis. And she used to take me to services as a seven or eight year old. And I remember sitting with Miss Lewis, having to be very formal and quiet during the service. We maintained contact. And then when I was about 11, my mother who had been attending the Brixton Orthodox Synagogue became rather tired of hearing Where's your husband? Why don't we ever see your husband? My father was a hatch-batch and dispatch Jew. He never went to synagogue. So my mother went to Lily and said, what on earth can I do? I'm being so embarrassed by these people. And Lily said, go to Streatham Liberal Synagogue. They won't ask you about your husband. Become a liberal Jew. I kept in touch with Miss Lily, as we called her. Over the years, she would invite me to one or two of her garden parties where she had the children of 
the women she called her girls, one of whom was my mother. So I knew her fairly well. And when it came time for us to get married, we obviously got married in my future husband's synagogue, the settlement. And Miss Lily volunteered to officiate at the wedding. Oh. So there we were married by a rabbi and Sir Basil and the Right Honourable Lily. We were thoroughly married. <laughs> I know she was highly respected in our family. My father used to talk about, oh, well, Lily Montague came round to our house. She very much wanted to make um, Judaism relevant to Jews in England. I mean, you know, like she said that they used to sing all things bright and beautiful at shawl and things like that. Well, she was a large lady to start with. Without wishing to be unpleasant, very much a spinster. I, I never ever thought of her in terms of any romantic connection. She may well have had them, but if she did, it was news to us. And she and her sister, Marion, who were very close, and they were always together, were formidable. They were big, they were big people. And we were little people. And they'd achieved so much, and especially in terms of the clubs that they'd run, and, or she in particular had run. Later, we met the product of people who'd been in her girls' clubs and boys' clubs. You come to shore in the afternoon. For me, it was better because I had to get there, because it's not around the corner like I could walk there. I'd get to the tube and go. And uh, so I joined that one. I thought it would be a nice afternoon and get home. It's okay, still light, you know, after a service, not that long. And I enjoyed it because I got to know people. And all lot of our members from the old shul joined. The Shabbat morning services are in the afternoon. They're at three o'clock in the afternoon. I think it's three or two. And that is because Lily Montague, probably a hundred years ago, or maybe a bit less, decided that it was really important that the young Jewish women who worked in the factories and the shops and the offices, I think, and had to work on the Saturday morning or they wouldn't have a job, that it was really important for them to be able to have somewhere to have a, a weekly Shabbat service. At that time, in the 20s, the West End had a fairly big Jewish population which supported quite a number of synagogues. But of course, most were Orthodox or united. And the services were, for obvious reasons, held on Saturday mornings. Now, they weren't all that well attended, certainly by the women. The women had to work. And the West End at that time was the center of a very prosperous clothing industry and they worked five and a half day week. Saturday afternoon and Sunday you were left to yourself. But the services were on Saturday morning and certainly Jewish girls that had been in Lily's club couldn't attend. So Lily decided she would do the Shachrit service 
on Saturday afternoon. And of course, built the West Central congregation around that situation. And here we are still holding our services at West Central on a Saturday afternoon. And I love that, you know, that even as early as 100 years ago, that that kind of flexible and what I would call advanced thinking was already already in operation. So I like that story. I just like that they did it and that here we are. And, it, and it's wonderful. It means that people don't have to get up at the, early in the morning to get, depending on the synagogue, some, synagogue, some liberal synagogues uh, services start at 10 o'clock, but the majority are at 11 o'clock. Who's awake at 11 o'clock? Lily Montague, I never knew her, but I did serve for a time in the community that she started, that started out life as the uh, West Central Club for Jewish Working Girls. And what I loved about her approach to Judaism, she herself did not understand herself to be a liberal Jew necessarily. She had grown up in the Orthodox world. Um, and what was difficult for her is that amongst the girls at the Jewish Working Girls Club, there were so many of them where the, the official community, the Orthodox community said, you work on Shabbat, so you can't be a good Jew. So we don't have anything to do with you. And instead of judging them for wanting to help their families and to bring in some income and needing to work on Saturday mornings if they were going to get a job and working in shops or in the rag trade, Lily Montague said, how can I give the gift of Shabbat back to these girls? So she set up the club so that they could come and have a Saturday morning service, even if it was at three in the afternoon. And I thought, yeah, that's where I always want to start with where people are. And if I can do that, then I will have fulfilled something of Lily's legacy. Her recognition that you've got all these Jews that are not going to fit in to mainstream Orthodox Judaism simply because of the, the working reality of you know not being able to work on Shabbat and all the rest of it. She recognised, you know, that something must be done to make people just become more included. And the reality would have been that if it wasn't for a liberal Judaism idea, so many Jews would have been lost, either become indifferent to their heritage or become Christian. I met my husband at a wedding, and the wedding was conducted by Lily Montague. Instead of a male conducting it, it was a woman. <laughs> I know that sounds a bit futile, but uh, but I've always been a feminist, so it didn't uh, uh, seem to me to be un unreasonable. Because I'd been so sort of alienated from Orthodox Judaism that I, I never went to synagogue, so what, you know, I, I wasn't really aware of, um, of how, at that time, so few women were involved. It just seemed... Okay, and the reason she conducted it was not not only that, that um, her family were members, her mother had been one of Miss Lily's girls at the West Central, so it was very appropriate that she, that she conducted the wedding. And that's actually 
I suppose it must have been the first time I'd seen a woman conduct a marriage ceremony. Now it's quite <laughs> absolutely normal. The founders of the Belsize Synagogue, and it was called the New Liberal Congregation then, were indebted to Lily Montague. They were all German refugees. They came from German Reformed Judaism. Uh, the founders, I, I can't remember the exact year, but I, it, it's probably something like 38, 1938. They could have stayed independent or they could have joined the Re British Reform Movement. And they chose to join the Liberal Movement because they were so indebted to Lily Montague. Now, Lily must have done an enormous amount for them, for them to say, we'll join your movement. When my cousins came to England, they also set about getting visas for the rest of the family. And one of those visas I got to come to England. Now, how was I going to get there? Nobody else had a visa. And my father advertised me in the Jewish Chronicle. And he got several replies. But he finally accepted an offer from a Jewish family in London, a doctor's family. This family was a part of the Liberal Jewish Synagogue. And the Liberal Jewish Synagogue at that time had a chairman, Lily Montague. She was the chairman. She realized what was happening on the continent. She called the meeting and she said, we must help. And several families came forward. And in fact, the Liberal Jewish Synagogue made it possible for three children to come to England. I came from Vienna. Another one came from, I think, Germany. And I'm not quite sure where the third one came from. But anyway, the date finally came. And I was on one of the very first kinder transports leaving from Vienna. I would just say she saved my life. My parents arrived in January 1939, and my mother was eight months pregnant, and it was a very difficult time to leave, as you can imagine. In fact, I can't imagine it at all, but Lily was personally very, very supportive and incredibly helpful, arranged for my mother's confinement, had people, or indeed herself, helped to find accommodation for them. They lived in Stoke Newington. They had a, a room somewhere above a shop. It was very simple, it was very basic, but it was safe, and that was crucial. My father became an assistant to uh, Rabbi Matuk at LJS. That was his first position here, all thanks to Lily. My father was basically Lily's boy. Wherever she needed him to go, whatever she needed him to do, he would happily do it. In '47, I was a nurse in Birmingham, and another colleague of mine showed me a letter, and she said, this is from Lily Montague from London. And I said, who is she? And he said, she is a lay rabbi, and she sends me a letter every month to strengthen me and help me. Uh, as a refugee, I have many obstacles and I'm so glad she writes to me. And I said, why doesn't she write to me? <laughs> and she said, she doesn't know you. And then later on, when I met my husband, and we got married, he said, we're going to be married by Lily Montague. 
And I said, oh, that's lovely. I've even heard of her. And he said, we're invited to her home and uh, we'll have tea there. And I was most impressed and I felt very humble in her presence. And she was very natural and told, asked us what we did, a doctor and a nurse. I remember her sermon, which had the theme of giving service to other people. And then she came another time to our synagogue here when she gave the blessing at the end of the service. I really felt this was like a high priest in the old days in the temple. And I shall never forget it. When my father was rabbi in Dublin and rabbi in Liverpool, we came to London quite a lot for conferences and we came as a family. And we used to stay in Bayswater. We stayed in the house and we were guests in the house. And that was always very elegant and very English <laughs> and very revelatory because it was not what I was used to or my sister. But we were always very, very charmingly received and very, very beautifully looked after. So she was very, very, um, what one might call hands-on, but very much a product of her generation. But I, I do find it strange, and it does make me smile, the image that I have of her as being very formal and very old-fashioned. But I have the, the knowledge that she was a radical. <laughs> Those two points I, are, are hard to reconcile. <laughs> and to me that makes me smile because I don't think of her as a rebel. I can't think of her as a rebel because she, to me, was personified as this very, very senior lady in yes. black and wearing a hat. Oh, she actually reminded me of a, of a European advocate. You know, she looked very much part of establishment as opposed to radical. <laughs> she must have had the most wonderfully persuasive way of getting her way because she didn't do it by violent argument. I didn't know her as such, but she used to be around all the time. She was often on the beamer, the Almema, as we called it in those days. I remember her turning around once. She was wearing her purple hat. They had like a, is it a seven-sided hat they used to wear? I can't remember, with a tassel on the top. And she said, I think I am a quarter rabbi. Well, those were the days she couldn't become a rabbi, a woman rabbi. I didn't know her well. Um, I'd heard stories of her, though, from my husband who used to work at the settlement in the East End. He always used to tell the story of when she came down one day. She'd been in a hurry and she'd put her dress on back to front. And even the girls in her, her group couldn't turn around and say, Miss Lily, you've got to dress on back to front. She, she wouldn't care. She was always looking after other people and being very charming, if a little austere. Lily Montague has always been an enormous influence on my life, one of my heroines, I suppose I'd say. She was an enormous influence on my father, Rabbi Harry Jacobi, and I don't think he'd have been able to become a rabbi without her support. And I grew up knowing about her, looking back at the letters that Lily Montague sent my dad and my mum. We were thinking how she had time to write all these letters. So when I was born, she wrote a lovely letter. And when my mum arrived in the country, she wrote a lovely letter. And she was so unfeeling and supportive at the time when other people, because my dad had left school at 14, and the, there were some other people who just didn't think he'd cut it. 
and she had this faith in him. So, you know, apart from being an amazing figure, she just believed in people. That's really important. She's, for me, a role model who, for her, her faith and her work in the world were just inseparable. That was Memories of Lily, part of the Lily's Legacy project, produced by Liberal Judaism with the National Heritage Lottery Fund. There's plenty more you can listen to and watch and find out about this incredible woman on lilieslegacyproject.com. So that's it from me. You've been listening to Transmitter, a social broadcast production. And if you want more, just subscribe to xmtr.fm, our new platform dedicated to sonic storytelling, featuring a panoply of works by radio makers, podcasters and sound artists from all over. I'll be back with more audio, radio and podcast discoveries in the new year. And if you have any recommendations, please do drop me a line via the social broadcast website. Until then, happy listening. <laughs>